Welcome to Managing Marketing, and today I'm joined by the Managing Director of Amobi, Liam Walsh. Welcome, Liam. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm glad you're here as well, because otherwise I'd be talking to myself. But uh, one of the things that uh, I think we've both seen in the last few years is this uh, uh, incredible explosion of uh, consultants and technology companies and you know, all sort. The landscape is changing, isn't it? It sure is. Um, it certainly feels like the consultancies are pretty enthusiastic about the space and having some success. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they roll out. I mean, there, you know, there's been some high-profile agencies being purchased around the world, uh, particularly by Accenture. But uh, there's also a huge amount of scepticism about their ability to integrate cultures, isn't there? And and I know um, uh, Ben Tolley at at, uh, Clarity, who did the um, Adam and Eve DDB purchase in the UK and the monkeys with Accenture here, said, oh, culture's not an issue. What do you think? Do you think there's a cultural mismatch between consultancy firms and advertising agencies yes yeah i do actually so i would typify the consulting company by definition as doing consulting mm-hmm. which means in my mind a lot of looking inside a business or a thing doing a lot of diagnosis doing a lot of interrogation and a lot of thinking a lot of planning a lot of recommend a lot of recommendations mm-hmm. i look at an ad agency and it does some diagnosis, not a lot. Mm. It does some thinking, not a tremendous amount, and then does tons of execution. So from a do those do those values and cultures align? Not really. If you simplify it even further, you've got a bunch of people who spend a lot of time thinking and a bunch of people who do a lot of time doing. But uh, in some ways, you could argue that that's the perfect uh, linear arrangement. You've got all the big thinking at the top end, and as it comes down, it gets to the point where you know we need to hand it over to someone to actually implement this and make stuff happen. I was going to say shit happen, but make stuff happen. Um, and that's where agencies come in. And if we own them, that means more of that client's money ends up in our pockets rather than someone else's. I think from a P&L perspective... Absolutely, and I, and I can't remember the name of the car company, whether it was Ford or GM. One of them in the states basically bought the entire supply chain for all of the parts, and ten years later, all the parts became really expensive, really inefficient because they weren't good at running those businesses. They were good at building cars and selling cars. When I think about that, as from a P&L perspective, yeah, that makes sense to, to have more of that End-to-end chain. integration, yeah. it's called, yeah. But, to, but can the culture survive it? Yeah, and that's the point. It's about the culture. I mean, the culture of an advertising agency is one about, you know, I love advertising agencies because they have the audacity to have this group of people called the creative department. Which immediately makes me think that everyone else in the in the agency can't be because they're not in the creative department. But you know, and I was one of those people in the creative department. 
for 15 years. So, you know, I felt pretty good about myself because I was surrounded by all these non blinkered Philistine non-creative types. Suits. Yeah. But um, do you think maybe that the, uh, the management consultants have actually expanded beyond just the thinking? Because you, when you look at, say, Deloitte, they've got a huge digital uh, practice that is only, and they're implementing uh, enterprise platforms and all no. sorts of things. I think those digital teams, because you're right, Deloitte's is big, Accenture's big. I think they Mate, are they're all big. Uh, this is one of the things everyone remembers. They could buy and sell WPP without batting an eyelid. So we think WPP in the ad world is big. They could just come along and buy it, any one of the big uh, um, uh, consulting firms. Yeah, totally. But, yeah. I, but I think in that their digital teams, I think they are doing more systems integration work. I don't think they're lower down doing advertising strategy. No. And they express some interest in it because it's a big market to play in. But I don't know how successful they'll be. Hmm. Because of this cultural misfit, you don't think the uh, advertising agency is going to fit inside... The um, though though I I did read. Hang on, I did read that someone at Accenture said they actually want the culture of the monkeys to be integrated into uh, Accenture. They they see it as a reverse engineering. That'd be interesting. Getting your uh, uh, your chartered accountant that does your audit to uh, do it with a layout pattern marker. You know? I think you see a lot. You do see a lot of these because a lot of these big business, big enterprises forget yeah. forget the consulting companies for a second. Mm. You just go top one hundred Australian listed companies. Say twenty, thirty percent of those guys have an incubation or a lab, mm-hmm. and inside the lab are all the clever people who look like they're from Marrickville and they're doing cool projects. To move the project out into the greater org, nearly always fails mm. because the culture and the and 99% of the P&L is out in that major org, and you go, but they go, well, this culture, this new nimble culture to come out in this massive org, and when it comes out, it just dies, mm. just gets squashed. So when you look at, if you get that example of the monkeys, I can understand why you might want that culture, but if it's 2% of your workforce, that's just a pipe dream. Like that can't happen, that structurally cannot happen. Mm. I mean, I, my concern is that uh, they're looking at the advertising industry from a financial point of view and the idea of having that integrated end-to-end because you can imagine you've just done a big enterprise solution into a big services company, let's say a telco somewhere. Uh, it's collected a database with all the customer details and all their uh, usage of telephones and internet and things and then you go gee that would be really good to use that for marketing wouldn't it yeah and why don't we move into that channel i mean you can see the logic going on in the uh in the minds of the management consultants which i think is it's tricky for two reasons one of them is very philosophical and could be complete rubbish but it is you have i think any business has to like the business it's in. So I think consulting business basically like, like consulting, dentists like being dentists and ad people like being ad people mostly. I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that the, that the consultancies really like advertising. 
And going into a sector you don't really like, or maybe even respect, I, I can't see them being very successful. Mm. Just can't see that. Yeah, I'm wondering if they actually understand marketing and advertising beyond, um, you know, the idea of driving acquisition and, and hitting financial KPIs through marketing. Um, whether they actually understand things like brand and what a brand means and, and how to, you know, it'd be, from my perspective, it'd be great if we got more accountability in marketing, but I'm not sure the accountants are going to do it. No, but on, no. And I, as I said, I can't see them executing. It's not what they do. They consult, they deploy, they leave. Sometimes mm. they don't deploy, sometimes they just consult. They're rarely there for execution, so I can't see... Okay, I should be able to, we should be able to list here's 20 examples of where this has worked. Yeah. Not companies, just projects. Yeah, yeah. But I can't think of three. Well, that's because it's a brave new world. It gets a lot of media attention. It gets a lot of media attention, and we can't think of three. Well, and, and actually the word media uh, made me realise it's interesting that to date all of the companies that the big consulting firms have bought are creative agencies or digital agencies. They haven't yet made a media play. And you would have to say, if you're sitting there with your financial lens on, you would go, that's the area to play because that's where most of the money is. And if I could find a way to disrupt and make that more accountable, then it would be the rivers of gold, wouldn't it? It's... That makes more sense to where you would start mm. because at least there's there's maths in there. There's some appreciation of IT and technology to solve problems. There's some appreciation of that. There's not much ability to build tech or anything compared to a creative agency, which is the opposite side of consulting. Mm. Because consulting is logic and math. In media, there's... Some logic, some math. In creators, virtually nothing. I just don't see where that synergy comes. Mm. And the two the two things they've got is strategy, but I mean, I use that in the broadest sense of the word because one is uh, often business strategy, and the other is probably at its best com strategy and its worst creative strategy. <laughs> yeah, they're different things. Yeah. When I think about strategy, you know. At a bank, and I meet the head of strategy. He's not talking about, or she is not talking about emotion. No, and one big idea. <laughs> That's not what they're talking about. They're talking about discounted cash flows, enterprise value. It's they're just different things. I oh, I love the fact that uh, marketing and advertising have so many opportunities to be a strategist. I mean, you know, you could meet a a channel strategist. You could meet a comm strategist. You could meet a mobile strategist. You could meet a social media strategist. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of more. What's the most interesting one? Um, I think that's probably... We've covered the most of them, but... Now, the only other one that is not a strategist, but the one that's quite hot right now is the data scientist. Oh, yes, the data scientist, yes. It's not knowing really what that means, except they're good at statistics. Well, the difference between a scientist and analyst is beyond me. I have no idea. I think 
with less parity, it's quite a valuable function because it's bringing rigor and math into into decision making. Because all those strategies you refer to, and are all true, by the way, are highly subjective approaches to strategy. Well, um, I actually, and, and I've written about this, that it's actually they're all salespeople because I've yet to meet a social media strategist that wasn't recommending social media. So I figure that, you know, strategy in a specialist agency means please came up with a reason why the client should spend more money with us. That's your job description pretty much. I, that does worry me because every time I go to my surgeon, he says, you need surgery, buddy. I hate to think he's just a salesman. I don't want a salesman operating on my knees. <laughs> I want a doctor. Well, after all, uh, he gets a direct benefit if he you does. say yes. So, you know. He, he never says don't get the surgery. Well, I, I think unlike perhaps, and let's hope that you've chosen well as a surgeon, mm. but he did uh, swear a oath to do no harm. But then Google did make uh, an oath to do no evil, and uh, I'm not sure they've actually, well, according to the European Union, they haven't lived up to that one either. I don't even know that they talk about it much these days. <laughs> I haven't heard them talk about Google a lot. It's a lofty goal to have if you're a listed entity. Exactly. But whether you can live up to it in the rush to deliver... Um, uh, shareholder value. Correct. That's the word I was looking for, Correct. shareholder value. But back to uh, strategy So and data scientists. I, I always uh, assumed that a data scientist, as opposed to a data analyst, is someone that could somehow take the insights mm -hmm. found in data and put them into the context of marketing. Do... Do you think yeah, I think, that's probably, I think that's probably I think that's probably right because then if you look at an an experiment paradigm structure that maps to scientists. Yeah, because because um, you know I think one of the big mistakes people make is they'll get a data analyst in who'll tell you, hey, did you know seventy two percent of people uh, who put their wallet in their left pocket rather than their right pocket, and you go, great, is that an insight? <laughs> Yeah, um, what you need is something that's actually usable. And I think that's the role of the data scientist is to take those pieces of information and turn them into a marketing insight that can be applied. Because it is, it is a nifty, it's like attribution. It's a nifty goal to say, analyze all this data and come up with pure gold. Mm. Because that's not really what an analyst does. He, anal he or she analyzes the data and has results or gives you another version of that data, but you, you, you can't yeah. do much with it. They're looking for trends or you know um, uh, anomalies and, and things in the data, patterns in the data yeah. that give hopefully would lead to an insight. Yeah, I think that I think the scientist probably does more causality inside that data. Yeah, it's, uh, that it's interesting because uh, that's a conversation I have a lot. People who say to me, oh, data can replace research. And I go, no, data can only tell you what people do. It can't tell you why they do it. Yeah, correct. That's why you still need research to, you know, once you've got your insight, you need to actually understand, if you want to understand the underlying uh, causality, you actually need to find some way of going and finding out. Maybe which, ask them. <laughs> which leads me to my passion point, which is attribution. Yeah. 
or that meme that says technology will give us full attribution of all of our marketing and we'll put all the data of everything we do into this brand and it will spit out the answer to say spend this much here that much there we're all done and people believe that's a realistic goal marketers say to me we want that and you're like that's impossible that even if it could be delivered would break on the first day mm. because if everyone had the same attribution machine every company would all have platinum success but only that can't happen in a market only some will succeed and some will fail mm. you can't all and to be told here's the answer is alarming and look i think that's one of the issues that uh that we see a lot of, which is that marketers are looking for empirical solutions. In that, yeah, exactly that. Oh, we've got an attribution model. Here is the answer. Yes. They think that that's empirical, that that actually means that it is the answer. If someone says to you, here's the answer, as a marketer, you'd go, that's the answer. When in actual fact, all attribution models are a hypothesis Correct. to apply to the data to get hopefully an insight. doesn't mean that it's real or it's empirical. It just tells you that if I apply this model, this hypothesis to the set of data that I've got, here's the result. I mean, I love the fact that if you add numbers to anything, people think it's empirical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen people add scoring on subjective performance of uh, an agency or supplier and that they somehow think because it was given a seven that that means that it's you know, above average. When all that means is that on a scale one to ten, they were given a seven. It actually means nothing about performance. It's also quite worrying from a, if you are sitting inside a marketing function or advertising function and you say, I want to get this system, which will give me empirical data, and the answer, the CEO has an obligation to get rid of the marketing department. <laughs> Like it just he or she just does. Like, what would you need a marketing department for if someone else can give you the answer? Mm. Well, that, you're getting me into uh, the Kinefin framework and the compl the idea of complexity because uh, the thing about complex systems and complexity mm -hmm. is that it's impossible to know cause and effect. You can monitor. You have the a stab at it. Well, no, because it it would just be a guess. What you can do is you can look. Because a complex system constantly evolves over time and it depends on the thousands and thousands of inputs. So a marketplace, even a person's decision-making process, is something that we can have a hypothesis yeah. about and we can test the hypothesis. But just because it gives you a certain result at a certain point in time yeah, is no guarantee that you'll get that same result every time. In fact, the fact that you got a result at this point in time can mean that you won't get that same result again. The very m method of measuring the result has actually changed the system forever. There's a lot there. I agree with every part of that. Yeah, well, because, I mean, the, the, the thing that we've got to watch out for is we're heading very close to quantum physics. So we'll stay away from quantum physics because that says things like the observer can actually influence the outcome. Yeah. So Again. we'll say, yeah, but we'll stay away from that because that will do some people's minds in. We'll be okay though. <laughs> if anyone's here. True. So uh, back to 
Back to uh, where were we? Uh, we were on. Oh, attribution, attribution models. Yeah. Attribution. So, so um, I've seen a lot of attribution models, and the ones I particularly like, and this is an actual uh, real life case study, was that uh, television was given a uh, two minute, three minute opportunity. If someone didn't hit the website after seeing the TV ad within three minutes, it was no longer attributed to that TV ad. But their direct mail had up to six weeks to be attributable. So if a direct mail piece went out for six weeks after that... now And then we started asking why. Why? The, the, the head marketer was a big fan of direct mail. So there you go. You can actually construct an attribution model to be a self-fulfilling prophecy that, is, that direct mail is more effective than television. Was the attribution, even though the attribution model is clearly flawed, did it have any rigor in it anywhere? No, that was right. just their attribution model. That was the one that they were using to uh, attribute the areas of investment in their marketing. I think there's, there is, a, I saw, there is an interesting... That's an interesting model. So I guess the point is, if you have an attribution model, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth anything. No, well, <laughs> they are subjective, but I saw one where it is, like, I think there's seven, statist- seven different statistical models, seven major ones, mm. and they run all seven and effectively just average the result of the seven <gasps> with the assumption being... We don't really know. All of these models are robust but have assumptions in them. So they're all flawed. Leverage them. Here's the result. Mm. Which is practical. And it's quite sensible, I think, in its thinking because at least it reduces some of the bias Mm. in the assumptions. Because in some ways, we're, we're talking attribution models, we're talking the end of the process, aren't we? This is yeah. real, well, not the end, but the measurement of the outcomes of Correct. the activity. Let's, let's climb back upstream to strategy, which we touched on before. I mean, the first part is uh, it's very hard to find really sharp marketing strategies lo- aligned to business objectives, isn't it? Very rarely seen that. Very rare to see that. Mm. You wouldn't even... It's very rare to see the business strategy. Mm. Anywhere near a marketing plan. Yeah, because often marketing has been moved so many steps away from the overall business strategy that it really is just becoming a cons exercise. You know, here are the things we need to communicate to these people. Um, just find the best way of doing it. Uh, is what the marketing plan becomes. Yeah, I think so, because a lot of those end goals might be, and I'm simplifying, but for example, it might be unaided recall. You'd know mm. all those things yeah. better than I would. But that's never in an annual report. No. It's never at the AGM. We've improved unaided recall of our brand by 1.5%. Like That is not a business objective. Mm. I think most of those KPIs in the age, at the AGM and in the annual report are not marketing. It's not marketing language. It's not in any briefs. Because mm. uh, there's a um, recent uh, report in Harvard Business Review around what's what's wrong or what's the problem with the CMO. 
And it was interesting, they did a study of CMO roles in the US and they found of, it was over 500 different CMO roles. They found about uh, 50% of them were what they call commercial CMOs in that they only really did the comms and advertising, the commercial part of marketing. Then there was 30% that they called strategic. They would be developing strategies for growth for the business but not actually with the responsibility of implementing them. Where was the responsibility? Well, that would sit with so the whole business. Right. You know, so it would be including sales and, and customer retail. And then there was only 20, around 20% is what they called the enterprise marketer with the P&L. So only 20% of all CMOs actually had P&L responsibility and responsible for driving business performance. Now, that's in the US. It'd be really interesting to see if that changed market by market. But I think it's, from my perspective, it's indicative of if marketing is such an important part of driving top-line growth for companies, why is it that so many marketers are now positioned so far away from the C-suite, even with the title CMO? Well, they have C in their title. Maybe they're very close, Darren. Mm. From your experience, do you think it's 20% here? No, look, I think uh, it's interesting here that the technology companies are more likely to have a senior marketer driving growth. And then after technology, service companies, uh, at the bottom end is the um, uh, manufacturers. And, and, you know, that's where it seems to be more about... Um, uh, being more commercial focused. As in advertising and promotion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would tend to agree. I would, I'm just reflecting on what I think of my experience has been, it would probably be 20% at best. Mm. Oh, I'm not even going to have a guess at what percentage it is. But, uh, yeah, and I think that's because that marketing is seen as a cost of business. Yeah. And yet, last year in the US, 48% of the Fortune 500 had their revenue fall year on year. So the single biggest challenge facing business in the US has to be growth. Right? They've cut their way to profit, but at the expense of growth. So if you're going to turn that around and start driving growth, where do you start? Well, I've read that stat too, and... And I haven't thought, I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I'm wondering if you analyse that a little bit, maybe 48% is natural. No, it's the first time they've had revenue drops. Because that's against a market growth of around 2%. So that's seven, on average, it's a 7.5% drop in revenue on those 48. That's gotcha. without taking into consideration the 2% growth. So it's actually closer to 10%. Because there's those other stats about how quickly in the last 10 years, the Fortune 500, how quickly you exit yeah. as new companies move in. And it's the fastest churn ever. Well, that would be even more reason why top line growth should be growing. Because if the fastest companies are coming into the Fortune 500, the fastest growing, yeah. they should be growing year on year. This is companies that have stayed in the... 48% have stayed in the Fortune 500 and had... Revenue drops. 
Yeah, I'd love to profile those businesses. My assumption walking into that is those those businesses will already be legacy. The assumption would be, yeah. I know. I don't have it here. I'd place I'd place a fifty cent bet on that. So I'm bold. It probably is. But I guess what the point is. It won't be Amazon. That, but if the single biggest challenge for business today is growth, yeah, then uh, the way to do that is to actually get really good at marketing. Yes. In its broader sense, isn't it? Yes. And, I, and the competition now, I don't mean like competition in a general sense, I mean the transformational shift of technology and what it does and what, again, what Amazon could do or do do and Tesla companies do do, they're so good at it mm. that the, I think the bar has just been raised a lot. And so if you walk in, if there's companies who are shrinking, they don't fundamentally say we do things the wrong way, then they're in trouble. Yeah, look, I'd go as far to say that the thing, all those great companies like Tesla, um, they actually start off with the proposition of we are here to create customers, Yeah. right? So they start off by saying how we're going to create customers. We're going to create a great product. We're going to create a great brand around that product. We're going to create some an experience of that brand that people will desire. We're not going to try and be something for everyone. We're not, you know, not everyone can afford a Tesla, right? And that's what actually creates demand. They're being exclusive in their pricing and in in their offer that makes it a desirable thing to have. That's a really smart piece of marketing. That marketing is not. I, I, have you ever seen a Tesla ad? I don't think they make ads for Tesla, right? Seen. But but the. All their fans are out there making, you know, consumer content around Tesla because it's that strong a brand. As soon as you turn a marketing function into just doing advertising, you're basically saying that I'm going to amputate it off the core of what marketing's about and just chuck some money at it to try and make up for any shortcomings I've got in the rest of the marketing mix. Aren't you? Yeah, sorry, I was just thinking about... I agree in that they're, they're, they're trying to solve a customer ambition or a customer problem. Who, Tesla? Yeah, Amazon, yeah. pick a pick yeah. cool brand. Um, and share and share price and market valuation, they believe, will come. And it has. It's come to them. Tesla's market valuation is very high. Mm. The, I think that a lot of the legacy business approach it from exactly the opposite way. Like we need to maintain our market valuation or grow it incrementally through small maneuvers mm. and tweaking our business, which is the exact opposite of what you're seeing for all the brands that everyone's excited about. Even from the business community, you're excited about those brands mm. and not excited about these other brands who just tinker. And, and a good example that would be retail banking. They tinker mm. with products but they don't hand on heart walk in and say, I want to delight my customers. That's not how they think. No, they'll say it. They'll, they'll say, say, we, they'll say we want to be customer-centric. And we want to, yeah, we're going to transform so that the customer's at the centre of everything Trends. we do. Um, you know, and we've seen it time and time again. And the way they express that is they'll do some advertising that tells us this is the promise and then the actual product and customer experience lets you down. Which I think... And they wonder why it fails. 
Who knows? Which I think you go, the, the organisation is that big, it's mm. hard to move a boat that big, hard to shift the culture. Agreed. But at the very top, the, the, the CEO can change that culture. Yeah, well, yeah, and that's where leadership comes in. You look at GE during its phenomenal growth years. You know, they were not just doing business as usual, you know, keeping the the main boat afloat. They were looking for uh, category opportunities to either create, uh, to build or buy. They were moving across into all sorts of new areas and building those business units uh, as a way of constantly evolving the GE brand. You know, and, and from engineering to finance to all sorts of things as a way. But that came from the top down. That was, you know, pure business leadership as to what were the opportunities to actually do that. It's interesting because if you look at Uber, then you would say it ticks all of those boxes. But the box that it probably left unticked was internal culture. Yeah. But it did everything else, which is quite... Unusual because it did. It looks it's a bit like Tesla. It looks really wide and goes. How many how many problems can we solve with our model? Whether it be Uber Eats or something else, mm. or just any old delivery of anything. You go, wow, really impressive thinking. Probably missed a well, internal. I don't, I don't know. I think Uber suffers also from being a little bit. You know, they solved. They disrupted one category. Yes. Right. And the thing is, once you disrupt that category, what's the next stage? I mean, the whole of the automotive industry is coming to terms with the the idea of autonomous vehicles and the change from um, uh, fossil fuels to electric, which is Tesla comes into. You know, there's a lot of disruption in the automotive industry, but Uber's really just uh, disrupted the taxi business. And what I like about the GE example is that they actually did, they had, you know, if we just stuck with this, then eventually we're going to just be defending that and we'll, you know, we'll be on a defence rather than a growth mode. No, if we can do this, why don't we do this? Why don't we get into medical technology? Why don't we get into uh, uh, um, uh, aeroplanes and, you know, and all of the other things that we could possibly do? They did go broad. Yeah, absolutely. And and some would argue that they went too broad, but then they would rationalise by selling divisions off. You know, what made GE phenomenal? Leadership. You know, it was absolute leadership. And I think, if anything, that's probably where, at every level of business, it's really hard to find great leaders. There's entrepreneurial leaders, there's, uh, there's charismatic leaders, but, you know, uh, Jeff uh, Be- Bezos... Yeah. At Amazon is probably the next big, you know, he's now the richest man in the world because he's diversifying the whole time. And somehow he convinced his shareholders, don't take a dividend. I'm going to reinvest it back into the company for, what is it, 20 odd years. 20 years. 20 years of saying, hey, no money this year. I like I'm that. reinvesting it. I like that 20 years that thing's been listed, 20 years that Australian retailers have had to get ready 20 years and they're sitting here with no plan but a bunch of complaints yeah but that's human nature isn't it because remember y2k yes 1999 was when we all started worrying about getting our computers y2k compliant we knew it you know they flagged it 10 years earlier the difference is y2k was never happened well how do you know 
How do you know that they didn't make everyone compliant so it wasn't an issue? I don't know. I don't know, actually. I don't think they did, did they? You've got a better memory than me. Um, but I think Amazon will hurt. Oh, I'm... I'm uh, the, only, the only thing uh, I find with, especially US companies in Australia, is that they underestimate the size of the country, the geographic size, and the relatively small... Uh, population, because uh, I heard recently about a Australian winemaker who got sick of the struggle of trying to sell wines in Australia because you know um, vast distances to travel to track uh, truck his uh, wines to relatively small markets. So he went to Texas because Texas has a larger population than Australia, but is the size smaller than New South Wales. And all he does is sells Australian-made wine in Texas, and he's ma- even though he has to freight it from Australia to Texas, he makes more money than he ever made in Australia. Is that true? That's a true story. So here's the idea. You know, if you're in a market like Australia, which is only 24 million people scattered across, and I know they're collected in cities, but largely scattered across yeah. a couple of thousand kilometres, why, why think of yourself only as an Australian company when you can go and sell anywhere you like? Yeah. You know, if the market, I love the, the idea. If the market's not right for you, change markets. Don't try and change the market. It's too hard. Because that's also probably what Yellowtail did, right? Yeah. I don't know how much they sell here. Not much. They Not sell, much. They sell a lot over there. Yeah, that's right. You know, I mean, that you use the Australian nature of it to actually sell lots of wine. I love that Texas one. Yeah. I mean, in one, one state is more people than uh, all of Australia. I had no idea there were more people in Texas than in Australia. It's about 26 million. It's only a couple of million more. You probably know someone in Texas, just saying. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, that's, to me, that's, if someone said to me, is that great marketing? Absolutely great marketing. And yet, didn't see a single ad. I mean, (laughs) correct. I mean, it's not transformational business, but it's good business. I don't know, it transformed his business. It transformed his (laughs) PNL. Did it change society? I think it did for Texans. They've now got decent wine. They've got more Australian wine, yeah. (laughs) Well, American wine's not bad either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not bad. (laughs) Well, it's been uh, an interesting conversation. Um, What do you think, though, is going to... Because we started off talking about uh, consulting firms. Mm. What do you think will be the next agency to get bought by a consulting firm?